My question today is, how valuable is human life? How valuable is human life? Well, there's a reason God said very plainly in the Old Testament, I'm paraphrasing it in modern language, but whoever kills a man by a man's hand, he will also die. So murder in the Old Testament period was a capital offense. You find in the New Testament, God said, murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers and so on and so forth are going to face God's judgment. You know why people act the way they do? They don't know what human life is all about. They don't realize their purpose here on the earth, and they do not know how valuable human life is. God said, clear back in the Old Testament period, that wasn't to happen because man was made in his image. So let's ask the fundamental question to begin with. You all know this, but we need to have a sort of brief uh, introductory into this. What is man anyway? Now, if you uh, follow the evolutionary line of reasoning, he's just a physical creature that evolved to the state he's in now, and he isn't anything special. In fact, you have this whole faction in this world today that's trying to bring animals and men together and make them one. And you have a movement that is trying to treat animals like human beings as though they think that they have a conscience and they're capable of the same things men are. The fact is, man is the only creation that God made that not only can think, but is aware that he's thinking. And he's here for something far greater than just some flesh and blood human purpose. So we read back here in Genesis, the second chapter, and verse number 17. Beginning in verse 16, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it. For in the day that you eat of you eat of it, you shall surely die. So it was all laid out right at the very beginning. You're now going to be given a choice. And making the wrong choice would lead to death. Now we know Adam did not die and Eve did not die the moment they ate the tree. But the Hebrew means that in dying, you will die. The process is set in motion. And of course, those first human beings made with the perfection they were made lived many, many years longer than we do. And then Genesis 3, verse 5, we read, when the woman saw that the tree was good, uh, rather uh, for, for the serpent, verse 4, the woman said to the woman, you will not surely die. She just told a half-truth, didn't he? You're not going to die then. But he didn't tell him you would die later. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So there is evil in this world. And this whole scenario of taking human beings, taking the life of another human being, is a part of this evil scenario. Now I know there's a difference between what occurred in the Old Testament period when uh, Israel was God's uh, nation and he used them to punish these heathen. And that's all very understandable when you recognize God's plan of salvation and that those people are, were not given their opportunity at that time. They'll be given it in the later, at a later time period. But when we're, what we're talking about individuals as we are as human beings today in the New Testament period, we're not to take a human, take another, take a life of another human being. Plain and simple. Now in verse 19, here's what happened. 
In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return unto the ground. That's all we are. Flesh and blood, human beings. And upon our death, what happens to the human body? They had a TV special the other night. I don't know why I always end up watching those things when I'm eating something, but I turned away from it. It's a special three or four acres attached to the University of Tennessee where the whole study, and they get degrees out of this, and they're using them as pathologists and solving crimes, various crimes of murder one time or another, and all they do is they take bodies out there Put them down on the ground and then they watch them very carefully every day to see what is taking place with respect to time, to maggots eating the bodies and this type of thing so they can know how long a, a body's been dead. You can see why I turned away from that channel. So that's what happens to the human body. You will go back to the dust. To dust you shall return. So that's what man is, physically. Now we do read this in Hebrews chapter 9. And verse number 27, Hebrews 9 and verse number 27, it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. Now we can die twice. Some people can. Some people will. But by and large, it's God's intent and purpose that we die once. We die once to physical death. There's a spiritual death that is, that is far um, more severe. And in Psalm 90, verse number 10, Psalm 90 and verse number 10, the days of our lives are 70 years. You know, the longest man that ever lived was Methuselah, and he, was, he lived 960 years. And he either died the year of the flood or he died during the flood. We're not really so certain. Gradually, over a period of time, that lifespan was cut down. And by the time we get down to Joseph and some of those, they were living over a hundred years. And in our time period today, now it's 70 years average. And uh, if by reason of strength they are 80 years, so if you happen to go 80 years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. We vanish. We go back to the dust of the earth. Now, we have a lot of people today that uh, I don't know why they don't. You know, we, we grew up in the various church affiliations that we've known. We hear these things over a period of time. You know, we don't have a thing on the Muslims. They think when they die, they're going up to whatever they call heaven, and they're going to have, what is it, 37 virgins? They, if they die for Allah. Well, what do we think? Well, we're going to go to heaven and play on a harp or whatever whatever we do up there. Uh, stare in God's face and, uh, and uh, smile all day long or something of that nature. You know, why do people swallow this nonsensical heathenism and paganism and they don't try to find out for themselves? Well, for one thing, God hasn't called them. And second thing, they just believe whatever they're told. The Bible makes it very plain. Jesus did, as we read here in John 11. Verse number 11. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death. 
but they thought that he was speaking about taking a rest to sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. That's what the Bible calls death. It's like being asleep. You don't have any consciousnesses. I'll show you very quickly here after death. No one has any consciousness after death. He doesn't have a spirit after death. He goes back to the dust of the earth, and there's where he remains until the resurrection. Psalm 6, verse 5. Psalm 6, verse 5. For in death there is no remembrance of you, and in the grave who will give you thanks? No consciousness after death. None whatsoever. Psalm 115, verse number 17. 115, verse 17. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor any who go down into silence. That's what happens upon death. It's like a sleep until the resurrection. Psalm 146, verses 3 and 4. Do not put your trust in princes, nor in a son of man or a human being, in whom there is no help, that is, there is no salvation from them. His spirit departs, and as the authorized version has, his breath departs. You see, in the Bible, that word spirit has a number of meanings. The two primary meanings, it means it has to do with a spirit being, a demon or something of that nature, or the mind of man, also the breath of man. So his breath departs, he returns to the earth. In that very day, his thoughts perish. This New King James Version says plans, but the authorized version correctly says thoughts. His thoughts perish. Now in 1 Corinthians 15, verse number 52. And this is the last text I want to read in this particular context here. 1 Corinthians 15, verse number 22. As in Adam, all die. We're all flesh and blood. It's going to happen sooner or later. And that's what man is. a physical flesh and blood human being. Subject to death. But now that's only a part of the story. What is his purpose? If he's a flesh and blood human being, he's mortal, he has no advantage over any animal, the same thing happens to it, then what advantage is there a man? And what is his purpose in I may have commented on this before, but I, I had a woman call me up in Springfield, Missouri one time and cursed me out on the phone something awful. You know why? I told her her dog didn't go to heaven. Yeah, really made her angry. Well, dogs don't go to heaven, neither do human beings for that matter. But what is man's purpose? Hebrews 2, verse number 6. One testified in a certain place, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and set over him the works of your hands. You have put all things in subject, subjection under his feet. Why are you concerned about man, he says here. Now even the ancients understood that. I'll tell you, this book of Job is just loaded with, with knowledge and, and wisdom and information that uh, most people, I think, have a tendency to overlook. 
But uh, let's go back here, for example, to Job, the seventh chapter, and notice what we read here in verse number 17. What is man that you should exalt him? That you should set your, your heart on him? That you should attend to him, visit him as the New King James Version has, marginal rendering, attend to him, that you should attend to him every morning and test him every moment. That's what this whole physical life is. It's a life of testing of one type or another, almost constantly. Why are you doing that? Why is God doing that with man? The question is being asked here. Well, there's one thing for certain. Here's man's state, as we read in Romans, the 8th chapter, in verse number 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn, Christ is the firstborn of many brethren. The firstborn of many brethren. Now, how was he the firstborn of many brethren? He wasn't any different than any other human being born of the flesh, was he? Except that he was God in the flesh. So why is he special? If he's the firstborn of many brethren, then this must be talking about something else. And Jesus, of course, is the firstborn, the first of the resurrection, firstborn of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, verse number 49. As we have borne the image of the earthy, man of the dust, as this says, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly, the heavenly man. So we're bearing the image now of a flesh and blood human being. God made man in his image. And we're going to bear the image of the heavenly, it reads here. Now that's, that is a different, that's a, a, a transcending uh, uh, area that is far above this present physical existence as a human being. That's why John writes here in 1 John 3, 2, you see the question I ask here, what, what is man's purpose? Here's what John said. Beloved, now we are, are the children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. See, we're only children of God right now, potentially. If we have a measure of God's Spirit, then we are potential sons of God. But what, what does he say here? We know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Now, how does God look today? Read it in Revelation. His face shines as the sun in its full strength. No man can look on God and live, we read in the Old Testament. And yet it says here we're going to see him as he is. Well, if we're going to see him as he is, then it means we have the same characteristics he has, the same nature he has. And that's a spirit body. Paul said there is a, a spiritual body. There's a physical body and there is a spiritual body. Now notice something very interesting here because um, I've heard people take this particular text here and poo-poo it. 
And this is in John 3. But this is what he says here. Most assuredly, I say to you that unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, of course, we know the account here. Nicodemus was puzzled. He couldn't understand what he meant. And so he asked him, you know, well, how's, how's that going to happen? And then Jesus said, unless one is born of water, and the Greek ek meaning out of, or from or by, by water, and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, what happens when we're baptized? We're immersed in water, aren't we? We come out, and the, and the baptism t typifies the death of the old man in the watery grave, and then as, he come, as, as, as the candidate comes out of the water, if he's truly met the conditions that God sets forth, which is real repentance, then he is re he's a, re a recipient of God's Holy Spirit and his begotten of the Holy Spirit. That's, what it, that's the beginning point. Paul tells us in the book of Romans that the only reason we're going to be resurrected is if we have the Spirit of God in us. If we don't have the Spirit of God, we will not be resurrected. Very plainly in Romans, the 8th chapter, one of the most important texts in the Bible. That means there have, there have to be conditions that have to be met first. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. When I was a young man, I remember reading these various books on philosophy, one type or another. And uh, this one man, was, I remember reading, he writing, he said, well, it's all in your mind. And if you just imagine that you can walk through the wall, walk through a wall, you can actually walk through a wall. So you try it sometime. <laughs> I don't care how much you imagine. See if it works. You know, men are limited. And so they cannot do what God can do. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So we're talking about a different realm altogether here. And we're talking about a life that far transcends this physical life. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell from, uh, from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit invisible, no longer under the same laws that regulate us as flesh and, flesh and blood human beings. Here's an interesting text in Isaiah, the 66th chapter. Very enlightening when you understand what it's really saying here. Isaiah 66, verse number 8. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day? Shall a people be born at once? Nation as it is, literal Hebrew means people. Well, it could mean either one, but shall a people be born at once? Now that never happens, we know that. So this has to be talking about something that's going to occur when? At the resurrection. The moment of a twinkling of an eye. So that's what we're looking at. We're looking at man's purpose, which is far greater than any other physical creation that God put on this earth. So human life is very valuable for that very purpose. And when someone comes along and murders somebody and carries out some horrible deed like that, 
they have attempted. They won't really do it because God has this whole purpose in mind of the second resurrection for things just like this. But I mean, they deprive that person of the greatest opportunity they're ever going to have in this physical life as God's calling them, or of the opportunity of learning the lesson of human suffering and experience to find out how valuable and important it is to live God's way when they're given the truth. You know, you look at a soap opera, and people follow some of these soap operas. I don't look at any of them. Why? I've seen enough of those kind of things in my own physical life in the lives of people. Why should I sit there and listen to all that kind of thing? I've seen it real. I've seen thing, real things happen. I've seen women just boot their husbands out and take up with someone else. I've seen them abandon their children. I mean, you name about anything that ever occurs that's rotten and evil, and I've seen it. And that's why this physical life is all about. Human beings have to learn through suffering. Now that leads me to the next point. Human life is necessary, absolutely necessary, to build character. How can you build character if you, you're not alive? Now what is character? Character is the ability to discern right from wrong, and then to always choose the right in opposition to the wrong. How many times do we fail to do that? For any number of reasons. Certainly one of the primary reasons in the world for people who have never been called, they don't even know what the right choice is. And for people who have been called and do understand the truth, sometimes their human nature gets in the way and they let it dominate and rule them and then they make the mistakes they do. The point is, Character is, the de development of character is twofold. It means understanding what choice to make and to make that choice. That's what we go through in this human life. That's what it's all about. You cut off a human life and that opportunity is gone. Most people, they don't get as far, as far along as, as those who are called because God has not given them the opportunity this time. But they're still going through that process of learning by suffering. I don't know how many people I've talked to in times past who repented. And you know why they repented? They suffered enough. They saw the end result of their way. They saw what it gave them. And they were not happy with their lives and what had happened to them. And they saw there was a better way to go. That's why they repented. And they were sorry for what they had done. So it is necessary. Human life is necessary to build character. Now, here's what we read in Isaiah, the 63rd chapter, and verse number 17. O Lord, why have you made us to err from your ways and hardened our heart from your fear? Why have you made us this way? I'll tell you why God made us this way, so we'd have something to overcome. God is not creating robots. That'd be the easiest thing in the world to make every creature just like he is, and then they just exact and do like God is. That would not serve his purpose. He's building holy, righteous character by the human experiences that we receive, and that takes something to fight against and overcome. Romans 8, verse 19. 
Romans 8, verse 19. The creation was subjected to futility or vanity, as uh, the Greek actually means vanity. That is, in itself, human beings without the knowledge of God, and they go their merry way, as Solomon says, all is vanity. There's nothing but vanity and, and emptiness. That's the way the human being was made. Not willingly. How many of you asked for it? One of my sons got mad at me one time, and he said, I didn't ask to be born. Well, did you? But it's a great privilege. It's when you have the truth. But because of him who subjected it in hope, in hope it's what it's been subjected in, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption. It's going to be delivered. We're in, a, we're in bondage to this corrupt human body, this flesh and blood, mortal body that's subject to death. Just go sometime two weeks without washing and shaving. See how popular you are. I came back from a bear hunting trip in Canada one time, and I hadn't bathed in a, in a, in a week's time. And I mean, people in the train, the, the conductor finally just sent me back to the freight cars. <laughs> Yes, he made it that way. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. That's what we're going through. This is what God said clear back here at the beginning. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse number 15. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. You got two courses. Two general courses to take. Now, of course, we know there are people that go to levels of evil worse than other human beings. But remember what the Bible says. Whosoever offends in one point is guilty of all. Verse 19, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose. Choose life. It's a choice. No one is forced to go the wrong way, nor is anyone forced to go the right way. We're free moral agents. You make that choice yourself. If your parents teach you the right principles of God, it'll be a whole lot easier for you. If they don't, it'll be that much tougher for you. But it's going to have to be made sooner or later. Choose life that both you and your descendants may live. Now, what does the process of choosing involve here? Well, here's an example of what Jesus said. And people are so prone to, uh, to look at the, uh, the tragedies of other people and think, uh oh, karma, which is nonsense. Oh, all karma is. I'll tell you what karma is. It's nothing more than what God says, time and chance. You reap what you sow. Now, sometimes you get away with it. You may not have to pay the price in this life, but you'll pay it in the next one. This nonsense that uh, it's, it's, it's cut and dried and you're automatically going to receive it may not be the case at all. That depends on what God has in mind. But here we read here in Luke 13, verse number 5, 
There were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. There's only one or two very brief historical references to this. No one really knows exactly what happened here, but it seems to have been an event that occurred where the Galileans were getting out of hand and the Romans sent the soldiers in and killed a bunch of these Galileans that were involved in some kind of religious sacrifice thing whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose these Galileans were worse sinner, sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? Time and chance. If you do not have God's protection, it's time and chance. Plain and simple. I tell you no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Here's what he said. And those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? Why that happened to them and not to you? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So that's the beginning point right there. Recognizing right from wrong acknowledging what you have done in the sight of God, turning around and going the other way and making up your mind, you're not going to live that way anymore and being sorrowful, very sorrowful and remorseful for what you've done. That's what repentance is all about. This is what Jeremiah said. Jeremiah 10, verse number 23. O oh Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. That is the way that is for man's benefit and for his good. It's not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his steps. You know, whoever made the statement paganism has all the advertising space knew exactly what he was talking about. You know, you heard of political correctness. It's sick. And people who, are, who think about political correctness all the time are sick people with respect to the truth of God. And you, you have to be exposed to this stuff all the time, don't you? Oh Lord, correct me, but with justice. Not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. He knew he had to have direction. That's one of the hardest things for people to be willing to admit today. They don't need any direction from anyone. They know which way to go. They think. Romans 13, verse 14. Here's what was required of us. Here's the character-building process. What does it require? Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Or the word provisions meaning no forethought. Don't be thinking and, and doting and wishing you could do something that's contrary to God's law. Don't invite it in. Don't make it a part of your thinking. Don't provide. Make any kind of provision so that you can be tempted. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ instead. Ephesians 
but on the new man, which was created to God in true righteousness and holiness. Righteousness and holiness. Not self-righteousness. Not your own idea of holiness. But true righteousness and holiness. The Bible defines righteousness in the Psalms as the keeping of God's commandments. How popular are God's commandments in the political correct scene we have in the world today? You better not go into a courtroom, I can tell you that, and fall back on the Bible for any authority. And you find out how these people think about God's law and God's commandments. And in Ephesians 2, here's the process we're going through. Life is a necessary experience in order to build character. So as we read here in Ephesians 2, verse number 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. The faith is from God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. I'll tell you what the saddest the saddest thing that, that, that developed in this whole so-called so reform movement, we call it the Protestant religion today. Luther was absolutely disgusted with the Roman Catholic. He was a priest himself. He was absolutely disgusted with this whole concept of indulgences. And there was a certain priest there he was associated with who was selling indulgences. That is to say, that people could commit some kind of a sin and then they'd pay, make a certain payment to the church and that would be forgiven. So he was selling them in advance. Luther was really disgusted with that and that began to set the whole thing in motion. And he got to reading one day in the book of Romans, and I think it's Romans 1 verse 17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. And he said, aha, no works. That's what's wrong with the whole Catholic religion. No more indulgences, no more uh, confessions, no more sacraments and all this kind of thing. And that's what he repudiated along with the authority of the Pope and the Church over the lives of the people. But you know what he did? He carried it one step further. He also applied that to the commandments of God. So, what do you say about the book of James, for example, and uh, two or three of those other books toward the end of the Bible? He said they're, they're epistles of straw. So what he did is he rejected James, who said very plain. That's why he rejected James, because James made it very plain how important it is to keep the commandments of God. But he didn't accept that, so he repudiated James. And who followed suit? This is why we have a whole religion today in the United States and in the world that calls, calls itself Protestant who repudiates the Sabbath, the fourth and the seventh commandments for certainly, and most of the others in one way or the other. And they have this, uh, what would I call it, moral um, um, sort of moral vagueness. Somehow they just believe, you know, if they're just... They're just moral and they, they do good and they don't even know how to define it. And they've all rejected obedience to God's commandments and God's laws. They don't know what righteousness is. And anybody says we've got to keep the law of God legally, you're legalistic. That's how deceived this whole world is. 
pretty sad. So as we read back here in Ephesians 2, not of works. Well, I'll, I'll say it to you this way. Listen very carefully. Works do not justify. The shed blood of Jesus Christ justifies us when we accept that and turn around, repent, and go the other way. But the man who is justified does works. He's obedient to God's commandments. Because if he turns right around and does the very thing that he supposedly repented for in the first place, then how could he even repent? This is how these people have been so deceived and so duped. It is a process of recognizing the faults that we all have and then turning to God and working to overcome them because overcoming is required. Now, if you read the article, it'll be posted on the Internet eventually here, this 36-page article that I just redid on the subject of the apostasy that set in the 70s, you find out what's being taught today by that worldwide church of God. Well, you, they'll tell you, you don't have to qualify for anything. Just accept Christ. No different than any other Protestant group. It's what it is. But you read here in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse number 7. He who overcomes, I'll give to eat from the tree of life. Verse 11. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Verse 17. He who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. I'll give him a white stone, and so forth. Revelation 3, verse 5. He who overcomes shall be clothed in quite white garments, and I'll not brought his name out of the book of life. And verse number 12. He who overcomes, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And uh, verse number 21. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me in my throne. Now don't try to tell me that just because you call yourself a church and then you proclaim absolutely the opposite of the Bible that you're going to be accepted and believed by people who think and who understand what the Bible says. I can tell you what I've learned over the years. I've learned over the years that people end up doing what they want to do. And they don't ignore what the Bible says. They don't give a hoot about what it says when they want to decide that they're going to do what they want to do. Well, sorry, folks. That's not the way it works. The way it works is we better be willing to obey. This human life, this human experience is absolutely necessary to build character. Now, that leads to the final point. Character is absolutely required for salvation. Do you think God is going to give salvation to some rebel like Satan was? Or is? Is God going to entrust that kind of power to somebody who's in the same spirit and attitude as Satan is? In the same spirit and attitude that many people have today? As the Bible says, the carnal mind is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can be. That's why we read here in Acts 2 verse 38. I don't have to spend any time on this, but just to to read it very quickly here, I've already explained. But here's the beginning point right here. Acts 2, verse 38. Repent 
And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the beginning point. That's where character starts. Recognizing right from wrong. And then determining you're, determining you're going to do, do right. Now let me tell you this. Don't ever think for one moment that because you have the truth of the Bible and you understand that, that's going to allow you to use that as a cloak for wickedness. You're not going to be able to cover yourself with a cloak and use that as a guise and underneath that wickedness be there. John 15, verse number 5. And that, of course, applies to every one of us. John 15, verse 5. Here's what Jesus said. We're talking about building character. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. That's right. Helpless. Absolutely helpless to live a godly life without God's help. Now, of course, I realize that there are, again, degrees of evil and sin, and some people are a whole lot worse than others, and it depends a lot on your background, your environment, your, your genes, and everything else. But, I mean, there are some pretty wicked people that do any, will do anything under the sun. I mean, they'll kill a man for a quarter. Happens all the time. That's how much attention they understand and pay to the value of human life. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse number 7. God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. That's how he expects us to behave. Do we do it perfectly? No. I'll tell you, we must never give up. That's why it says in the Bible, he, and this is the way it should actually read, because the Greek has it as a progressive, progressive tense. He that is overcoming and that is enduring to the end, the same shall be saved. Will anybody really overcome and be perfect in the flesh? I doubt it. I doubt it. Now, there are some people who think they are. That doesn't happen as long as we've got flesh and blood in us. Matthew 23, uh, Matthew 25, Matthew 25 and verse number 23. Here's what he said. You know, you stop and consider the stakes. We hear about people all the time, you know, they, they uh, invest a little money in the stock market and they get a sudden, sudden a break and a few dollars make some millions. Well, I can tell you that's exception to the rule because most people lose. Whoever wins, somebody else is lost. But here's what Jesus said. He gave this example here. And he said, the Lord said to him, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. Have we been faithful over a few things? That's all we've been given in this physical life, just a few things. You have been faithful in a few things. I will make you rule over many things. Why? If you cannot be dependent on the little things, how can you be dependent upon for the big things? Don't oversell short the, don't ever, ever sell short the little things. 
Because that, you know, eventually, is what's going to make up the big things. Don't ever take the things that God requires and commands, of, commands us to do as, as, as light and insignificant. Job said. He recognizes it clear back here. In Job chapter 14. And uh, verse number 14. Job 14 verse 14. If a man dies... Shall he live again? Yeah, good question, isn't it? What makes man so special? What makes man special is that God is creating in, in man himself, reproducing his own family. Every time you become a parent, you know what you are? You're a partner with God in creation. Be amazed how many parents don't even comprehend that. They don't know how to train their children. They don't know how to teach them the truth. They can't even hold their marriages together. They break up. They ruin the lives of their children. It's just pathetic what goes on in this world today. Why? My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, you shall be no priest to me, seeing that you have forgotten your God. You know, what to God all the ministers in the nation are preaching what you're hearing here today? Are they going to do it? Of course not. If a man dies, shall he live again? Oh, well, here's what Job said. All the days of my hard service, I will wait till my change comes. You shall call and I will answer you. You shall desire the work of your hands. That's right. Man is the work of God's hands. He was created here for a magnificent purpose. And as Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse number 42, so is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. That's right. That's what this human body is. It is raised in incorruption. That's what the spirit body is. It is sown in dishonor. Why? Because we have all this human nature and all these problems we have. It is raised in glory. That's a spiritual body. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. That's the difference. You know, this, uh, this philosophy thing that I was reading when I was a teenager said you could walk through a wall. That applies right here when you have a spiritual body. That's not going to work if you have a natural body. Philippians 3, verse number 12. Not that I have already attained... I'm already perfected. But I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count my help myself to have apprehended or obtained it. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's what it's all about. Character is absolutely necessary for salvation. 
But remember what Paul said here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is a time to be thinking seriously about this text here. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 13. Each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it. Absolutely will. There's going to be no getting around it at all. Because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test everyone's work of what sort it is. That's what this human life is. Tried in the fire. That's what we go through. But remember. Let me close with this text right here. In Hebrews the second chapter. I read you a little while ago. That man was. That God has had put all things under subjection to man. But notice what we read. The rest of that verse. Hebrews 2 verse 8. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now. We do not see yet. All things. That are put under him. That's what we'll see in the kingdom of God in the future. If we recognize the value. Of building character. And the value of what this human life is all about.